0: Well, I think I'm going to pray and we'll get started. I think I mentioned uh, two weeks ago that we've changed the format up a little bit. Maybe not anything that you would notice on your end, but um, kind of internally, we've got a set number of verses that we need to get through so that I can assign teaching to some different people that are going to be leading adult Sunday school. So let's pray and we will jump right in. God, we thank you for this morning and another day to... Praise your name and give you glory and draw closer to you. We thank you for the gospel of Mark and the way that we come to know Jesus more accurately, more closely through it. I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that you would teach us about yourself, reveal yourself to us, increase our love for you, and just bless our discussion in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. So Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 12. And you can move desks around if you, if you want to, just as long as you put them back at the end. All right, Mark chapter 11, verse 12. On the following day, so this is uh, the day after Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. The very next day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing there but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So we'll just stop right there. Um, This is kind of an interesting scene, isn't it? Um, Even though we are told in verse 13 that it's not the season for figs, Jesus is disappointed in this tree and curses it. Um, well, I'm I'm going to use the word curse. The text here doesn't use the word curse, but if you look down in your Bible to verse, uh, where is it? Uh, verse 21. Peter says that Jesus cursed this tree, right? And you can see what's going to happen down in verse 20. When they pass by that same fig tree the next day, it's withered away to its roots. So we'll get there in a minute. Um, But maybe let me point out first that verse 12 tells us that uh, Jesus was hungry. On a few occasions throughout the Gospels, we're told that Jesus is hungry. And I love that little tidbit of information because in addition to moving the narrative forward and uh, unpacking some of the story for us, this helps us see the full humanity of Jesus, right? Jesus is fully God, but he's fully man. So he gets hungry, he gets tired, he gets weary. Um, He's sustained in supernatural ways by the spirit of God, that's true, but he's also very human. And that's important because uh, as human, Jesus is going to fulfill our human obligation. So we would actually say that Jesus is the true and better Adam. Where Adam failed under temptation, Jesus succeeded. And so he's fully man. Actually, I I explain to people, Jesus is more human than you are. There's a sense in which we can say you are subhuman. You are less than human. Because human, according to God's original design, was human in obedience to God. So to the extent to which you are disobedient to God, you're actually less than human. All right, but Jesus is fully human, and so he's hungry. Now, this is a painful object lesson, I would say, about the importance of spiritual fruit. So what, what we're seeing here is Jesus walks into Jerusalem and finds that Jerusalem is not bearing spiritual fruit. And Mark, immediately after Jesus leaves the temple then, gives us this picture of this fig tree that's not bearing fruit. So, Mark, in a very dramatic way, is setting the literary stage for the cleansing of the temple that's going to come next. Okay? Does does that make sense? Any questions on that so far? Okay. Um, If you just came in, we're in Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14. Okay, so the point here is really penetrating. Israel should have borne spiritual fruit, but they failed. And as a result, they will be cut off, and no one will ever eat fruit from Judaism again. See what Jesus says there, verse 14? May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So this scene does require some explanation since Jesus curses the tree for having no figs, but Mark tells us it's not the season for figs. What's going on there? That seems kind of uh, unkind. Well, actually, you have to understand the the like nature of the fig tree, okay? Okay. Uh, This time of year is the Passover. It's the middle of the month of Nisan, which is April. And in Palestine, fig trees produce crops of small edible buds starting in March. Followed by the appearance of these green leafy leaves, green leaves in April. So this green, this like early green fruit, these little buds... were actually a common snack for kind of the peasant class in Palestine, in Israel. So Mark says the fig tree was in leaf, meaning that it should have had these little buds that they could pluck off and snack on. Not full figs, but still edible little, um, you know, snacks. Now eventually those buds would drop off and then a normal crop of figs would grow in their place And that would happen around May and June, which was fig season. So it's totally reasonable for Jesus right before Passover to pass by this tree and expect to find maybe not full figs, but some kind of edible bud that he could eat. And the lack of any of those edible buds also indicates that that tree, when the fruit season comes, guess what? will not bear any fruit, right? The buds precede the fruit. So there will be no harvest from this tree come harvest time. Now in the same way, Jesus already entered into the temple. He's seen all of the religious greenery of Israel. Jonas was telling us about that last week. And yet despite this really impressive temple and all of the religious pomp and circumstance that Israel is always engaging in, there's no spiritual fruit being born by these people. So just as the tree appears green and in leaf and yet bears no fruit, Israel appears to be God's people but bears no fruit for Yahweh. Does that make sense? Um, I'll give you a couple yeah. I just had like one problem with this explanation. I've heard it like so many times before. But my problem is that it's kind of like telling me that Jesus was caught off guard, that the tree was not bearing fruit. And that's against his omniscience. And I believe that he knew the, the trees didn't have the fruit. But when we when I hear this explanation, I don't hear this part. I don't know, you see what I mean? Yeah. Like, I feel, I feel like Jesus was just one there to illustrate something to the disciples. He knew that the, the trees didn't have fruit. But he wants to just the, the latter of what you said. You, know, you see what I mean, uh, about Israel? But he knew that the truth still happened. Well, okay, so this is where we get into the full humanity of Jesus and the full divinity of Jesus. Both of these things are true. Jesus as a man does not know all things, which is why he can say uh, only the Father knows that day and that hour. It's also why the text can tell us that he grew in wisdom and stature. <coughs> yes in his divinity he knows all things and he never he never set that he never like relinquished that but somehow in a way we can't really understand i think he was able to compartmentalize these things and so is he caught off guard no i think his intention was that he would find this tree and it would not be bearing fruit and he would curse it and it would be a perfect illustration of israel right and i'm going to give you a couple old testament verses that I think kind of are prophecies about this. But what does the text say? It says he was hungry and he saw a fig tree and he went to see if he could find any figs on it and there weren't any. So I don't know. This is where we get to some of this mystery of did anything catch Jesus off guard? No. Um, And yet in his humanity, he constrained himself to a truly human experience. Um, And yet while doing that, he didn't become less than God. He he laid aside, uh, you know. Philippians two says he he emptied himself, but he didn't become less than God. That's not possible. So I don't know. Is that helpful at all, or does that just make things worse? <laughs> I'm just about it. Okay. <laughs> I think there are many things in the Bible where we need to wrestle with things, that are, and we really are not God, therefore we won't fully understand stuff. Like yeah. That Trinity. Yeah. So like I think there are many. ideas out there kind of sort of explain it but it's not yeah and when you get to this idea that's theologically called the hypostatic union you are dealing with a a doctrine that is beyond comprehension because we can't understand how you can have 200% right we can't understand how Jesus can be fully God and fully man. The, all the heresies that stem out of this, he's some mixture. He's like half God, half man. No, that doesn't work. He's actually God just kind of wearing like a man suit. No, that doesn't work. He's actually man that had kind of like a divine, you know, appointment. No, that doesn't work. So we get into this area where it's like, it's very difficult to comprehend. Even Paul um, admitted there was mysteries to him, that he couldn't comprehend. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're talking about... We're, we're talking about, even even when we're talking about God the Father, there are things that we cannot comprehend. Then when we talk about God who becomes man, it's it's some mystery. What I, all I would say is that the text says he's hungry, he sees a fig tree in a, in the distance, he goes to see if there are figs on it, this is what Mark tells us, and there aren't any. Was he really surprised by that? I don't think so, because he's actually going to use this as a perfect illustration for Israel. So let's look at some of these. Well, I'm just going to rattle them off cuz we do we are kind of constrained by time, but you can listen Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 13. In a in a prophecy God says, "When I would gather them, that's Israel, when I would gather Israel declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them." What verse is that? Jeremiah 8:13. And then you have Hosea 9:16 that says Ephraim is stricken their root is dried up they shall bear no fruit even though they give birth i will put their beloved children to death They they shall bear no fruit. Micah 7.1 Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. Do you hear even that? First ripe fig? That could even refer to the idea of those like buds that come before the figs. Okay? There is no first ripe fig. Let's look at another one that's really important. Isaiah chapter 5. I'll have you turn there. This, this imagery is not of figs, but it is of a fruitless uh, vine. And so it's the same idea, even though it's a different illustration. And this is pretty important because Jesus uses this illustration quite a bit. And it, it basically comes right from Isaiah. Isaiah 5, starting in verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? made these people to be his people, to reflect him, to be spiritually committed to him. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and what does he find? He finds just empty religion. And actually, there's another prophecy in Ezekiel, I think it's like 11 through 14, that talks about the spirit of God leaving the temple. And uh, and so here's all these people, they're doing all these religious things, but there's no there's no divine commitment to it. There's no love for Yahweh in it. Now, the modern, you can go back to Mark chapter 11, the modern sort of squishy view of Jesus as this always kind, gentle, you know, never harsh dude, uh, is kind of shattered by scenes like this. You know, we're going to see Jesus not only curse a fig tree, but go into the temple and toss things around and, in anger, I think, uh, yell at crowds. And um, it's important that we embrace this part of Jesus, like God has wrath, uh, particularly towards man's rebellion of what God has made beautiful and good and true and right. So here we see Jesus offer a curse and not a blessing. His expectations for the tree are not met, and so he curses it. And actually we see that same kind of thing in Revelation in the letters to the seven churches. Jesus says, here's my expectation for you. Live up to it. And if you don't, there will be this curse. And if you do, there will be this blessing. So any other thoughts, questions on any of that? Um, yes, um, there was something in the Super Bowl I didn't see, but I heard about, like, there were commercials that had, like, a Christian tone, like, he gets us. Yeah. But um, be mindful if you watch watching or if you ever watch those kind of commercials, be sure that they don't align to the world. Yeah, I think they were actually for Scientology. We were all kind of like, whoa. I know one year the Super Bowl did have lots of uh, commercials for Scientology. I didn't watch any of the Super Bowls. So I didn't see any of the commercials, but I'm familiar with this organization, He Gets Us. And um, they've, they've not been super clear about like what they're trying to accomplish, but I know that local churches can go and request to be a because what they try and do is they try and get people to their website and then at the website you tell them where you live and they try and connect you with a local church. So at least to that extent that's kind of cool. But this is a typical thing that happens where the culture hates Jesus, Jesus told us the world would hate him and so Christians fall into this temptation to like make Jesus more yeah, more likable, right? Uh, that, he he's he he can sometimes be like a cactus, and so instead we'll like put a teddy bear you know exterior on him. But Jesus is Jesus, <laughs> like, and you have to take him for who he is, which is in his totality. Um, so yeah, good good word of advice there. You know, just because something says Jesus doesn't mean that that's that you should embrace it. You should do some. Critical thinking around that. Yeah, those who get those commercials and never sit right. They, they, it's it's yeah. such like a pandering. Yeah, and I, I'm always weary or wary of an organization that calls itself Christian that won't state what its doctrine is. That's always a little bit suspicious in my mind. Okay, moving on verses 15 uh, through 19. <clears throat> And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching and when evening came they went out of the city so Jesus is justly angry in this scene <coughs> and it's really important to understand that not all anger is sinful you know Ephesians 4:26 tells us be angry and do not sin so you can have a kind of anger that is not sin um, obviously, God's anger is tied to his justice, his righteousness, his holiness. Um, but we're also told that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I should have given you the reference for that. I don't, I don't remember what it is, but you could look it up. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of, of God. So we need to be careful the way that we express our human anger. But Jesus, being divine, is totally justified in his anger here this is righteous indignation and notice that Jesus is, isn't even offended for himself he's offended on behalf of god right this is god's temple and it is being profaned so the the temple was considered the dwelling place of god the house of god we can also then justly Or rightly understand that for Jesus, being the true son of God, he has a right to clean up his father's house, right? If he comes to his father's house and finds it out of order, he's totally justified to put it back in order. Now, of course, all the earth belongs to God, right? At the dedication of the temple, Solomon says, can God really even dwell in this temple? Of course not, right? All of the earth is his footstool. Uh, So, does God dwell in any particular place on earth? No. All the earth belongs to him. Therefore, it is God's prerogative to pour out his wrath over all of the earth, everywhere that his will is not done. That will happen at the final judgment. I hope you understand that. Um, But in this scene, we get just a microcosm of that final judgment, right? So... Jesus comes into the temple, it's out of order. He throws things around and says, this is not how it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be like this. Well, at the end of all things, Christ will return and he will do a cleansing very much similar to this. It won't be in the temple, it will be all of the earth. So it's kind of important to understand the structure of the temple ground. So I put it up here, forgive my uh, terrible drawing skills. But you have the court of the Gentiles, you can see here, is this outer area. So the Gentiles were not allowed any further into the temple than this. This was an open-air part of the, the temple. This structure in here is closed. Then you have the women's court, the court of Israel. That's as far as the men could go, the priests could go here. Then you have the holy place where uh, the high priest was able to go on a few occasions, and then the Holy of Holies, where only once a year the high priest would enter. One of the things that is so beautiful when you see this laid out, is you know what this screams? No access. This God is not accessible to you. And then, of course, when Christ dies, what happens? The veil is torn. The message being all access to God has been made for you by Christ. So the 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 where this scene is unfolding is in this court of the Gentiles, uh, which was essentially open to anybody. Just about anybody could go. Well, anybody could go in there. Um, and uh, what do Jews think about Gentiles? Filth. Mm-hmm. What say it like nice and loud? Filth. Yeah, filth. Dogs. Dogs, right? So if you've got a A marketplace in the court of the Gentiles, that's, like, appropriate. You know, the Jews are like, well, these people are profane anyway. So who cares if we throw up a market in the court of the Gentiles, right? God doesn't love these people anyway. They're outside of his care and concern. So no Gentile was allowed beyond this outer court. And and in this court, the high priest Caiaphas probably at some point had authorized some kind of market for the sale of ritually pure uh sacrifice items things that were approved so because this is God's holy temple you couldn't just take anything in here even even the money and we'll see the money changers um, but the wine the oil the salt the sacrificial animals all of those things that you would come and offer to God you couldn't just bring from your your you know your own cages back home. It had to meet a certain Levitical standard of holiness and purity. And so what you've got going on here is is probably kind of like the government corruption we have, which is if you want to be authorized to sell your pigeons in the court of the Gentiles, you need to make sure that this guy over here, who's the high priest, gets his share so that you are approved for that work. Okay. Now, in addition to that, you've got money that comes from three different sources. You've got the uh, Greek money. That's the provincial money that comes from the local area. You've got wider Roman uh, money that was being used, imperial money. And then you have just the local Jewish money. And uh, the temple would not accept money for its coffers, which were holy, right? The box was literally holy. You couldn't just go drop a Roman coin in there. You would make the whole thing unholy as far as the priests were concerned. So you first had to go to the money changer who would give you the Jewish Tyrian mark, which was an approved holy kind of uh, coin. What, what, What was the difference between these coins? Does anybody know? Yeah, the inscriptions. They had no. They, they had an image of Caesar, which was considered idolatrous, right? Or the Greek coins would have Greek gods or Greek people on them, and so that that was considered idolatry. You couldn't have an image other than the image. Of, well, I mean, you weren't even supposed to have an image of God in the temple, right? So you had to exchange this money, and um, you know these transactions were. Uh, the, the the priest had authorized a legitimate little surcharge, right? Just like if you go to a money changer today and you want to get, you know, um, Mexican pesos, they're going to charge you for that service. The, the, the priest had authorized that kind of exchange as well, so you would charge on top of it. But there was all kinds of fraud and deceit that was wrapped up in this. Um, <clears throat> You know, there was extortion that was taking place. Now, the other thing is, if you look here, uh, it says in verse 16, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So what you've got here is, if you look, there might be some shortcuts through the city. If you can just, you know, kind of cut through here, right? You can just kind of cut through here. So you got these people that are using this as like a city park and they're taking shortcuts and they're carrying all their stuff, you know, from from their house over to this marketplace or whatever. And uh, and that's also offensive to God because this is supposed to be a place where your attention gets moved from the things of this world to supernatural divine things of God. So now we can get a better understanding of Jesus' rage and indignation. you got all these different things, right? You've got these extortioners, money changers, marketplace. The the Jewish assumption that this would be fine in the court of the Gentiles because Gentiles are pigs anyway. You've got people just moving through here as if it's just another, you know, city center square that they can walk through. So this shows not only a disrespect for God, that's obvious, but also, Jesus is outraged by the disrespect that it shows for the Gentiles, that this would be set up in the place that's meant for them to come and even worship Yahweh. right? Look at verse uh, 17. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Not so much prayer taking place in the court of the Gentiles when it's a, you know, a flourishing, busy, noisy marketplace. So this is a lack of love for neighbor. Now the scriptures that Jesus quotes here, maybe your Bible gives you a reference. They come from Isaiah 56, verse 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's Isaiah 56, verse 7. And then brought together with that, but you have made it a den of robbers. That's from Jeremiah 7, 11. Isn't that interesting how Jesus can just smash together two prophecies and say, this is what's going on. Now, the irony of the scene is palpable, isn't it? Because the chief priests and the Pharisees, the scribes, are deeply offended at Jesus. These are men who are incredibly concerned about whether the pigeon that you bring in is ritually pure enough to be sacrificed on the altar. They care about that. And yet what they do not care about is for how the temple itself is profaned and misused. So there's a lot of irony here. And their anger is not merely at the words of Jesus, but they're also upset at his bold, zealous rage. Um, And they're afraid because what do the crowds think about what Jesus says and does here? at the end of verse 18 Yeah, there was surprised and um, and also was offended say. does your version say offended um, <laughs> at the end of verse 18 yeah. the 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 pharisees well, it says they began seeking, uh, seeking to destroy him so that's how i like kind of like say offended okay so that's the that's the pharisees it says they were astonished oh. at his teaching. but but look at the the crowds how did the crowds respond it said they were astonished Astonish. at his teaching. yeah Yeah, so that word does not communicate um, offense or anger. You know, they're kind of astonished. You can almost be impressed. So, uh, you know, the crowds seem to actually approve of what Jesus is teaching here. I think they probably feel like a lot of us feel when it comes, again, and I'm sorry to get on this shtick, but, you know, the federal government that keeps raising our taxes and then goes and spends the money in ways that, if they were to sit down and say, "How do you feel about this?" we'd probably be like, well, "I don't think that's a great way to spend my money." Actually, right? I'm guessing the crowds probably feel a bit like that. Like they know this is going on, but they don't have any power to change the way that the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees do this. But what can they do about it? And then here comes this man who takes it upon himself to throw the tables over and to yell with righteous indignation that this is inappropriate and um and i think the crowds they're they're probably on to some of the hypocrisy of the scribes and the pharisees they see the corruption and um you know if you were to take again let's just use the illustration of our government i mean we know that there's corruption right like it's they even admit there's corruption it, of course, it's never the politician who's talking about corruption that is the corrupt one. But the point is, nobody's going. nobody has the courage to go to Washington, D.C. and say, all right, today's the day. We're going to start a revolution. It's time for something to change, right? We may, We might all feel like it and talk about it privately at home, but nobody's willing to do that. And then here comes this man, Jesus, and he actually is willing. And so you can see why the scribes and the Pharisees, the chief priests, would hate this man. He is a threat to their power. He is on to their corruption and not only willing to you know complain about it in the safety of his home like most people would do but actually to bring his complaint to the temple. So the temple here has all the appearance of being a house of worship for God but it's full of rot on the inside. And um, Man, isn't this also just an illustration that we need to ponder, personally? This is an excellent illustration of our current temptation towards religiosity. We are easily satisfied with the appearance of godliness without the transforming power that is radically at work to reorient the heart. Like most people, I want to be careful how I say this, but, you know, most people are interested in a kind of religious experience that doesn't let God get too close, actually, right? They want kind of the the external appearance of godliness, but do they really want to have their heart, like, totally radically change? There's an author I like, and he, he sort of jokes about how in heaven the will of God is done and there's no place to sneak off for a quick sin. Right? At right now, doesn't that sound a little bit uncomfortable to you? Another way he says this is if I could give you a pill that would make it so that you could never lie again, you could take that pill right now and you would never lie again in this life, would you take that pill? Oh, yeah. Yes, I I think I will. Yeah, you think you would, right? Doesn't this kind of present a problem where you're like, well, you know, if my boss asked me was I really late because of traffic, but it was because I decided, I decided to go to Starbucks for that cup of coffee, I wouldn't be able to fudge that. Maybe it would also help change some of our actions, so we're not you know. yes, of course, right? we We get it. The point I'm trying to get at is that it, it's um it's tempting to settle for the religious exterior and not the total transformation that God is offering. Mm. And um, so the text is really clear here, kind of moving on uh, with two specific references in verse verses sixteen and eighteen that uh, Jesus took time to teach. So I don't know how you envision this moment, but I think that, and verse 19 says, when evening came, right? Uh, If you look on the following day, verse 12, when he came from Bethany. So I think it's quite possible that actually this whole scene unfolded not over over the course of minutes, but potentially hours. That Jesus was potentially in the temple teaching. He's throwing stuff around. He's te- yelling at people to get out. He's turning to the crowds and saying, you know, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. Don't you understand what that means? This is how you treat Gentiles. So Mark gives us a picture of the scene, but it's probably not as full as it could be. Okay. Um, so then you, if that's the case, even if it was 10 minutes, news travels fast. Why wasn't Jesus arrested? Because they were afraid of the crowds. Yeah, because the text tells us that the scribes and the Pharisees, the high priests, the, the priests, they were afraid of the crowds. Because actually the crowds liked what Jesus had to say. And, um, you know, this is the man who just the day before entered Jerusalem with hordes of people saying, Blessed is he, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So, um, the crowds have showed their support for Jesus and um, it kind of puts the religious leaders in a bind here. They have to figure out a way to destroy this man so that he doesn't destroy their power, but they have to do it in a way that doesn't undermine their power by exposing them for the criminals they are. So you can't arrest this man in broad daylight in the temple. You're going to have a riot on your hands, which helps us understand why when Jesus is finally arrested, it's done in the middle of the night, and his trial is done while most people are sleeping. And so what do people hear when they wake up? Oh, they found Jesus was guilty. Right? The trial's already over. It's been done. Does that make sense? Any other thoughts, questions, or comments on that section? All right, well, then verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Man. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Okay, man, this is just an incredible picture of the power of the Word of God, isn't it? Now think about this. When you read Genesis chapter 3, what happens in that passage? And if you need to look, that's okay, you can. What happens in Genesis 3? You got it? Sin enters the world. And in response to man's rebellion, what does God do? Cast them out. Okay, he casts them out, but what does he do before that? He even uses some words. He uses the same word that Peter uses in verse 21. What? Curse. Curse. So I don't know about you, but when I read Genesis chapter 3, I'm sort of like, eh, it's interesting. But what I want you to see is when Jesus finds this fig tree that's not doing what it's supposed to do, he curses it. And what's the result? The very next day, it is dead. God finds man in rebellion in the garden. And what does he do? He pronounces a curse. And you want to... Like, that's the world you're living in. It is the withered tree. Don't you understand? It is the ruin that we have brought into the world by not obeying what God has commanded. And I want you to just see the power of God's word. Um, He literally has the power to speak life. And he has the power to speak death. And unfortunately, man's choices in rebellion of God have brought... Not the fruit of life, but the curse of death. And so, man, just think about that personally for a moment. Like, are you living under the blessing of God's word, the scriptures? Or are you doing your own thing and bringing the destruction that comes with doing your own thing? How powerful is the word of God? What what Jesus proclaims immediately comes to pass. The fig tree withers and dies, and in Genesis three, humanity is broken. So, here's a principle. Okay, this is a tough principle, but I'll, I'll give it to you. And then there's hope. So hang with me. Here's the principle. The word of God to tear down and destroy is powerful and effective. In fact, in, Genesis, or in, in Revelation 19, we, we see Jesus, and he's, he's on a battlefield. He's at the front of an army clothed in white. That's you and me, I believe. And on the other side of the battlefield are those who are in rebellion against him. And how does he defeat that army? The text says just with the word of his power. Right? He's got a sword that comes out of his mouth that is the word. And with the word he defeats this army. But, praise God that the inverse is also true. Right, So what I said is the word of God to tear down and destroy is powerful and effective. But the inverse is also true. The word of God to build up is powerful and effective. And literally the choice of life and death is before you. Which of those words do you want to live under? The word of his blessing that comes from scripture or the word of the curse that comes from rebellion? That's a question for application. So we have Peter. I love Peter. He's got so much character in the Gospels. He just like really pops and stands out. And um, as as if Jesus would be surprised, right? Peter's like, look, Jesus, that tree the fig tree you cursed, it's withered. And I don't know why Peter would be surprised at anything that Jesus does at this point. You know, I love Peter, but he's got a a little bit of a thick skull. Um, Of course, he's shocked and surprised. And then the reply that Jesus gives is really interesting. Um, He doesn't so much teach about the cursing of the tree as he just encourages them to have faith. He reminds them to have faith. And I think that's actually really important because these guys in particular are going to need it over the next couple of days, right? Here's Jesus who comes into Jerusalem to the cheers of all the crowd, and he's got the boldness to cleanse the temple, and he's got the power with a word to curse a tree and watch it die. And what, what are they going to see him do very soon? They're going to see him be defeated. right? They're going to think, wait, I thought this guy had courage and power and praise. I, I thought that he was going to come and fulfill the prophecy to David to set up a kingdom and a throne. Why is he on a cross? And so Jesus encourages them, have faith in God, verse 22. Surely the God who can destroy the fig tree with the power of his word is also capable of safeguarding them through whatever difficulties they might face. So he reminds them, though, notice that he doesn't say, have faith. What does he say? Have faith faith in God. I know we talk about this a lot in adult Sunday school, but it, it, it just is worth repeating again and again and again because we live in a religiosity, like a Christian religiosity that says your faith has power. Right? So there are some strains of Christianity that, like, if you're sick, well, they'll say go pray. And if you don't get better, what will they tell you? Faith wasn't strong enough. Yeah, you didn't have enough faith right the problem is with you but that's not what the Bible teaches the Bible does not say anything about the power of your faith because Jesus says with the faith the size of a mustard seed you could move mountains what the Bible says is your faith points you to a God who is powerful Right, so Jesus doesn't say have faith. He says have faith in God, and that's really important. He says believe in me. He doesn't just say believe. Believe, right? Yes, and that's the culture that we live in, right? This must be true because I believe it very strongly. No, 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 no. (laughs) There's no power in belief, right? Um fortunately that's the case because many little kids believe that there are like monsters under the bed they believe it very strongly but that doesn't create monsters under the bed right so praise God Uh, the point here is that the power is found in the object in which we believe and then this is why it's really important to believe that God is sovereign he's good he's in control he loves you because when you go to him and you pray, God move this mountain, and he says no, you can trust that his answer is because he's good, because he loves you, because he's sovereign, because he sees what you do not see, because he'll actually care for you through that. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, was, <clears throat> I heard about one of the someone I was listening to was telling a story. He was talking about how, when he, of course, he was in I don't know South Dakota or something, but he was living in and the in uh, his view there was a mountain when he was a little kid you know, he heard you know faith must size muster so you can move mountains so he's trying to do that so his dad came out and he um asked him and he told his dad and his dad asked him why are you trying to move mountain are you trying to do it for your own glory or for or for god yeah and uh obviously it was for himself if i do this i'll become famous right get a bunch of money and stuff right like that. right totally Yes, I'm sure there are lots of stories similar to that, right? Where our motivation is wrong. Okay, but we do have a little bit of a problem. Because look at verses 23 and 24. I just emphasized Jesus saying, have faith in God. But then look what he says. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. But don't seem to emphasize, like, well, just pray and believe, right? And this is what the prosperity people harp on, right? Like, just visualize the Lamborghini and pray and believe and it'll be yours. Um,. Well, the teaching is intentional hyperbole. We see Jesus do this, where he intentionally speaks in sort of emphatic ways to help us understand what he's talking about. Um, it's it's shocking. You know what else was shocking? The withered fig tree, <laughs> right? Jesus could have just said, "Hey, Israel's like a tree that doesn't bear any fruit. It's it's in big trouble." But no, he, like, curses a tree and it dies. And that's a powerful object lesson. Um, Now, we should be impressed by what Jesus is saying here because God, in his power, can do impossible things. Can you move a mountain? No. Certainly not without, you know, lots of bulldozers and trucks and dynamite. Not simply right but god does have the power to do this god can do impossible things actually mark already told us that remember mark chapter 10 verse 27 with god or sorry with man this is impossible but with god all things are possible so this is jesus is he's he's elaborating that teaching that god can do impossible things now it's important that we understand that the bible constrains itself okay so i've already i probably have already told you this one of the rules of hermeneutics which is like good biblical interpretation is that we let the bible interpret the bible and we interpret the less clear passages with the more clear passages so we've got john fifteen seven that helps us understand what kind of asking we should be doing. What does John fifteen seven say? Anybody want to read it for us? I can, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. So What kind of asking should we do? Think about it. Say it again. Yeah, so if we're abiding in Jesus, that means we're with him. It means our desires are directed to him. It means that our life is flowing from him. So what are you going to ask for? Yeah, eternal things. You're going to ask for the things that Jesus himself asks. And of course, God's going to give that, right? So are you going to ask for a Lamborghini? No, you're going to ask to be spiritually rich. And of course God's going to answer that prayer. You're going to ask for wisdom, which James tells us God gives freely to those that ask. Right? So this teaching is absolutely true, but it's not meant to be material. Right? What's the biggest mountain that you face, if you will? Our own unbelief. Yeah, your own sin, your own unbelief. And fortunately with faith the size of a mustard seed, you can ask God to move that and He will. Um, Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, if you delight in the Lord, what is the desire of your heart? Yeah, The Lord. <laughs> right yeah. so if he is the desire of your heart you delight in him he's going to give you more of himself right and uh, and of course jesus also teaches us uh to pray that our that god's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven okay so don't don't misunderstand this teaching this teaching is not telling you that jesus is or that god is like some genie in a bottle in heaven And, you know, you can just pray your belief prayer and rub that bottle and he'll come out and grant you your wishes. That's not what this means at all. Um, And you know what? Where, where, like sometimes people want to be impressed by the power of God. But where has the power of God been most impressively displayed? On the cross. Yeah, on the cross, right? Right. Like, Jesus endured suffering and punishment and wrath for you. And then, even though that suffering and punishment and wrath put him in the grave, he rose from the dead. Like, what greater mountain is there for God to move than your dead sin nature? If you want to see impressive things done, then just look at the cross. And actually, that's where Jesus is headed in Mark's gospel. And if we are truly impressed by the cross and the resurrection, then our desire is going to be for that. I mean, it's going to be for what God also desires, right? We're going to see in him the things that our hearts truly desire. All right, well, we'll wrap up there. Jonas, you're leading next week, right? Yes. I was just noting that after saying, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, after the image lesson, then he teaches on prayer. Isn't Mm -hmm. that interesting? That's good. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Thank you for pointing that out. What was that, Psalm 37? Psalm 37, it's like verses uh, 3 through 4 or something like that. It's early in Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Alright, how about I uh, close this in prayer? God, I I ask that you would help us to have faith in you. Not faith in our faith, but faith in you. And we thank you that uh, it does not take much faith, because you are a good God, and a big God, and a powerful God. And so just the tiniest droplet of our faith is sufficient to help us set our minds on you and to be transformed by your power and your goodness. Um, We thank you for Jesus and his righteous indignation and his teaching about God's intention for even Gentiles to find uh, mercy before God. Um, We thank you for where in Mark's gospel, Jesus is headed to the cross and the resurrection. And I pray that as we go from here, just our our hearts would be um, encouraged by the power of your word. And uh, that we would look to your word to have transformed lives. In Christ's name, amen. amen.